Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Ashlyn Asiri, and today we are joined by Hugh Music to discuss design and implementation science in healthcare. Mr. Music, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Ashley. Before we begin, I'd like to introduce our guest. Mr. Music has an extensive background in design and implementation within the healthcare system. He currently serves as the co-director of the Institute for Healthcare Delivery Design and an associate director for the Population Health Sciences Program at the University of Illinois, Chicago. His current work focuses on designing healthcare systems and care delivery models that reach underserved populations and emphasize the importance of preventative medicine. Today, he joins us to shed some light on these incredibly important topics. Mr. Music, let's start at the beginning. Can you give us a basic overview of the principles behind human-centered design and their applications in healthcare? Sure. Human-centered design has been around in one form or another for more than 80 years here in the United States, but simply understood, if you think about um, what's happened over the last 30 years with regard to computers and how they went from the domain of people who were trained as engineers to being available to everybody. It was really a story about usability. Um, but increasingly, this notion of usability has permeated all aspects of our lives. So if you think about how you bank or how we travel today via Uber or Lyft or how we order food, um, you can see that uh, these aspects of human-centeredness and human-centered design have become increasingly important in how we navigate our lives. So practically speaking, if you're trying to approach a specific problem or question with human-centered design mindset, how do you approach that and how do you go about beginning to think uh, from this perspective? Really, human-centered design boils down to a couple of very simple principles. Um, the, the first principle is that you need to understand context, which is, you know, what, what's really going on and what's the bigger picture here within healthcare delivery. So if you think about the case of high-frequency users of emergency departments, um, what's really going on that that's driving that behavior and is it actually a healthcare problem or are there other things that are contributing to that? So thinking in terms of multiple systems becomes very important, but there's another aspect to this, which is how does the given context shape the behaviors of people? And when we talk about people, we're not just talking about patients, but we're also talking about clinicians and we're administrators. And um, the, the more you think holistically about the uh, situation, the more stakeholders who become involved, some who are very uh, frontline facing, but others who operate in the background who are just as important. So um, understand context, understand users. And then the, the third principle that really uh, is the basis for human-centered design is um, build empathy. And people frequently conflate empathy and sympathy. This isn't about feeling for somebody, but it, it's developing an appreciation for the situation that they're in, what the barriers are, and um, uh, trying to understand exactly what's going on uh, with them that are contributing to challenges and how you might uh, change the dynamics of that situation to, to create flow where there is blockage. 
So it sounds like the human-centered design approach and mindset take into account several of the principles that tie in nicely to behavioral science, which we've discussed on a prior podcast episode. When we talk about implementation science, how does that play into all of this and what does that exactly encompass? It's a really good question. So, so implementation science is really the study of methods and strategies that facilitate the uptake of evidence-based practice and research into regular use by clinicians and uh, administrators. Implementation science has been around for about 25 years, um, and it was very good in, in figuring out this issue around context. So implementation science operates according to something that's called the Consolidated Framework for Implementation Research, or CIFR. And CIFR says that to understand um, what are the barriers to implementation, you need to understand what the outer setting is, which is sort of the social political context. You need to understand an inner setting which means understanding the particular healthcare organization and its own unique culture. And that can, uh, that can vary. You can be within the same organization and have subcultures that exist at the department level. And, and if you have a department that has different clinics, you can even see even a further segmentation of culture there. Um, it's also about uh, you know the the process by which an, imp- an implementation can come to pass, the individual players, and then also you know what would be the components of an intervention. So the this um, consolidated framework, which goes by the acronym CIFR, really determined what to do in implementation science, but um, doesn't necessarily say how to go about doing it. Human-centered design is complementary to implementation science in that it has uh, an entire body of frameworks and ways of working that enable you to do the what. So if implementation science says what to do, human-centered design complements it by indicating how you can do it. And, and so, you know, um, with regard to understanding outer, you know, outer setting, um, what human-centered design brings to it is ways to structure information. So mapping um, multi-systems to indicate where they overlap and intersect with one another. You know, with regard to um, inner setting and understanding cultures within organizations, it's really applied anthropology. Uh, it's about going in and understanding what's going on. So um we, we do a lot of work at University of Illinois at Chicago with our Department of Ophthalmology. And um, what you have um, within that department are 10 different clinics. And uh, each one of those clinics um, has uh, someone who's running it who works with the, the various technicians. And each of them has sort of a, a preference for people who, who know their routines and their rhythms. So um, while that's created great efficiency, what happens is if any one technician might call in sick one day, it causes a cascading effect. So in that particular um, instance, what we recognized was they had developed a culture so tailored 
around the people leading the clinics that um, it left them vulnerable to, to slight disruptions. So um, in looking at that situation, one of the things that we simply recognized was that um, by cross-training technicians um, to, to know how to work you know, in uh, the retinal clinic versus the glaucoma clinic actually created more flexibility within the system that could then deal with any sorts of disruptions that might come up. I can see why using the principles behind implementation science would be especially useful and important when we're working in complex environments such as hospitals or even the larger healthcare system as any human-centered, you know, solution that we have for a problem for our patients or colleagues would have to work well within a multifaceted process. And so uh, I I can see why that would be very important uh, in order to be successful. Does implementation science also play a role in measuring um, outcomes or understanding how a solution or a design um, is functioning once it's actually implemented? That's definitely part of the, the science side on it. Um, my particular group is much more um, about informing uh, the development of an intervention. And then the measurement is generally handled by people who are doing more of the, the actual implementation follow-up. So from a logistics standpoint, this kind of leads right into the next point, is who is actually involved in implementing and executing uh, human-centered design ideas in healthcare systems? Is it practitioners? Is it hospital administrators? Can it be anybody? That's a really good question. You know, um, you tend to get a lot of buy-in for human-centered design at both ends of the spectrum. Leaders recognize that things could work better and frontline staff also recognize the need for things to work better. Um, and so everybody should be uh, involved and they are very interested in doing things like this. I think one of the challenges of working in a healthcare setting is that um, everybody's already stretched very thin and everybody has sort of adapted to operate as efficiently as possible. And Anytime you introduce a change into people's routines, it slows them down and they have to recalibrate. Um, so it does involve everyone. Um, you tend to find champions. Um, uptake um, tends to be embraced by uh, frontline people. And um, some of the complexities then become around uh, having to calibrate and balance between um, trying to do things new and differently um, and being uh, and operating according to you know existing paradigms uh, which are all about still um, ensuring that there's sufficient throughput um, I'm not sure if that's answering your question or not, but, uh, you know, everybody is really involved with it. It's usually endorsed by uh, department heads or other leaders of this, um, and it's carried out by frontline staff. 
Yes, that that makes complete sense to me. Um, from my experience, uh, physicians have a unique advantage when we're thinking about human-centered design since we have access directly to our quote-unquote consumer or patients on a daily basis. And we understand many of the needs of that specific patient population that we're thinking about. Um, do you think that physicians are particularly poised um, to develop effective human-centered resolutions for patients? And how can physicians potentially be more intentional about their role in the healthcare system and how they shape the patient experience? So, uh, you know, my, my experience is that everybody wants to doctor. Um, and, uh, you know, this is why they chose to, to get into medicine and they want to have meaningful connections. But again, I think that the way that healthcare has evolved in the United States is um, it, it's actually operating, I think, with a manufacturing paradigm. Uh, and it's all about throughput. And um, I think that um, as a result of that, um, there's this tendency to feel burnt out and, and feeling like you didn't do, do sufficiently. Um, I think at, at base, what people need to do, um, and human-centered design frequently talks about, instead of attention deficit disorder, reflection deficit disorder, I think that for clinicians to be able to carve time out after they've had a patient encounter to reflect a bit on what it is that they heard can help inform them to operate with more intentionality and to think more systemically about the patient who comes through the door. If we, we think about uh, the way that healthcare has been set up, you know, uh, patients wait a long time to get into an exam room and they end up seeing a physician for six minutes, you know, maybe 20 minutes at max, you know, only a couple of times a year. And so to think that in that short a window, uh, a, a clinician can really get a sense of what this person's needs are probably isn't realistic. I think the lens of social determinants of health, which I think, you know, any trained clinician understands um, we, we know counts probably more than, you know, uh, other aspects of health. And yet we don't spend a lot of time really trying to put the pieces together as to what's going on. So, um, just by way of anecdote, you know, we were doing some work for, uh, a, a sickle cell center within a healthcare system and, uh, among the patients who was there, one was a very heavy utilizer. I think that this patient had over 150 hospitalizations in a year. And we were trying to understand whether um, it was an issue of disease, but the more we probed and actually went into the patient's home and spent some time with this patient, the more we realized that the environment that the patient was being discharged to was very chaotic. And so coming to the hospital wasn't just to manage her care, but it was also because uh, being in the hospital was a much more stable environment than the patient had at home. Um, and probably through a, a, a regular visit, and this patient had been there, you know, 150 days or more, 
that information hadn't been picked up on. So, uh, you know, human-centered design isn't magic. It's just spending time to, to talk to people and to understand them, to, to get the bigger picture of what might be going on um, and, and understand how those outer influences are affecting what it is that you're seeing as a clinician and being able to be more informed about how to treat the whole patient. Yes. And this is certainly a theme that we've seen time and time again, that the outside environmental factors play a huge role in the behaviors of any individual. And that also certainly plays a role in their medical care as well. Outside of social determinants, what are some of the most common trends or themes that you see um, that play a big role in human-centered design, or even some trends that may be problematic from a design standpoint that you see in the healthcare system? I, I, I think this notion of throughput versus care that I've, I've talked about right now Um I think the the notion of keeping people healthy outside of the healthcare system is very important. Our office does the community health needs assessment, the triannual health needs assessments that uh, were mandated through the Affordable Care Act. And um, since 2013, we've seen the same issues over and over again, which are... um, Patients really struggle with the management of chronic diseases, and we know that lifestyle has a lot to do with that. Um, So uh, what we need, I think, is, uh, or a a theme that occurs time and again that influences what shows up within the hospital is really getting closer to daily life to understand where people live, work, and play. And if there's better knowledge of that, um, we might be able to more effectively meet people where they're at and uh, be able to think of health as something that's not just delivered within a clinical setting, but but something that um, people experience every day. And, and so it's less sort of... Um, a, a consumer model and more of a holistic, this is what constitutes human life model where uh, there needs to be more integration. And and right now, I think this theme of healthcare only happening within the four walls of a healthcare system um, is something that's created challenges for people. I think we see this over-reliance on emergency departments um, and Again, if you take a human-centered design perspective, one of the things that we understand about why people choose to use EDs is that um, making uh, appointments for primary or secondary care is not particularly um, user-friendly. People have to take off time from work. Uh, A lot of people, in particular in underserved populations, have multiple jobs. And so for them to get to the doctor in the middle of the day is something that that they can't afford to do. And so where and when can they get care? Well, they can show up to the emergency departments open all the time. So over-reliance, I think, is a big theme. Um, And I think that the theme of burnout 
is a, a, a very important one. We know that um, a lot of people who've worked very hard to become doctors find that once they get into the system, they're not spending enough time doctoring or, or doing the sort of work that they had envisioned to do. And instead, they feel like they're um, working on an assembly line. And so, um, you know, developing a way for having more meaningful encounters is also one of the aims and the themes that I think is driving this interest in human-centered design. Going back to one of the um, topics that you mentioned, which is integrating health into the lives of our patients outside of the physical location of a clinic or a hospital. Um, I think that ties in nicely to this idea that health needs to be convenient for patients. And that convenience has a connotation of luxury, in my opinion. And really in health, it's not so much a luxury as it is a necessity, where patients who you need access to care outside of the nine to five business hours should be able to access care outside of a, an emergency department. Do you see any particular technologies or systems that are um, being more utilized in recent years that can potentially aid um, integrating health outside of the hospital, such as telehealth or you know remote technologies that may be um, more accessible for patients. I, I I think it's very early to to know what impact these things are having, but certainly I think within the domain of behavioral health, um, people have found um, being able to have telehealth appointments. Uh, very helpful. And I th think to some extent it's working. I've even seen um, some chatbots that can engage people in conversations and, and be able to triage and identify early depression. Um, so uh, I, I think it remains to be seen. I think that the current pandemic situation has accelerated some things, certainly here within Illinois, um, but it's also new. It's unclear um, what it will do, but I, I, I think it's less the medium than it is the message. And so if the medium uh, allows greater access um, to, to change the situation right now of experiencing healthcare as being very transactional to one that can become more relational, then I think... Uh, that can be very positive. So I, I, I think the means is less important than the end, which is people want to have a relationship with their healthcare providers. And I think also healthcare providers want to have a relationship with their patients. And uh, the way we're going to bridge that is to, to be in dialogue with one another about what it is that they need beyond just um, prescribing medications or um, evaluating them. I think we, we need to play a much more active role in their daily lives and helping people be healthy to achieve the things that matter to them. So uh, controlling a, a person's A1C um, is important for their overall health, but from the patient's perspective, um, 
What's more important for them is to be around for their children or to be around for their grandchildren. And so to be able to understand what people's larger goals are and, and to be able to think about um, the service that physicians are delivering to people to enable them to uh, live the best possible lives, I, I think is the basis for building that foundation. One thing that frequently comes up when we're discussing how do we transition from a transactional system to a more relationship or ongoing based system is the underlying financial models that exist in our healthcare system. And the the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of the services we provide are using a fee-for-service payment model. And we are moving towards some bundling and um, some of the ideas that underpin bundling are that we can have a long-term relationship with patients that includes all of the care associated with a specific disease or a specific process. And I think in some cases that's helpful. Do you see that as a necessity or something that would need to change to be able to implement some of the design uh, or patient-centered design aspects that you're discussing or to make preventative care more effective? Absolutely. Uh, there's no question in my mind, and, and this is my own opining, but, but certainly the move toward value-based care, I think, is more calibrated to the realities of daily life. I think if we continue to operate um, just thinking about this as a manufacturing operation um, and one that is you know ever more challenging uh, to, to sustain from a business perspective, I, I think we're going to be in real trouble. I think the pandemic has also highlighted some aspects of this. Um, so uh, we know that if you make people travel to you to get care versus putting care closer to them, we know that the outcomes tend to be worse. So uh, this is just sort of common sense, which is if you lower the barriers to access, the, the better um, a population is going to be. And um, there are economic ramifications for this that exist outside of the bottom line of healthcare systems, which is if people can't be productive in daily life, um, that has an impact on the larger economy. And um, the difficulty that people have obtaining health, whether um, they exist within urban settings and um, uh, they live in disadvantaged circumstances, or if they live in rural settings, um, this issue of access um, is a huge challenge. We've been able to address access uh, in other domains of daily life in a much more effective way. You know, um, it doesn't matter where you live anywhere in the world right now. Logistics has advanced to the point where you can get anything, you know, within a, a matter of 24 or 48 hours shipped to you and, and dropped right off. If we can do that for you purchasing a microphone, um, why should it be any more difficult 
for a person to obtain health in a similar way. We should have the means to do this. And just as Amazon has made it remarkably easy to purchase uh, commodities of all sorts, uh, you know, ordinary people should be able to purchase and obtain health care with as much ease. And that that's really sort of the bottom line story of why human-centered design in healthcare is important and why it's particularly important now. So I don't think any physician would disagree with a lot of the principles underlying human-centered design and the need for medicine to meet the patient versus the patient coming to a medical center. It's challenging for some of us who haven't had experience with these kinds of concepts to understand how the physician fits into these new models. Um, certainly, you know, there's the very basic idea of concierge um, services and physicians traveling to patients, but on a broader scale, that doesn't necessarily work in every situation. Have you seen any ideas or um, models that have better explained the role of the physician in some of these systems that take patient-centered design into consideration? Yeah. So um, the Institute for Healthcare Delivery Design at University of Illinois at Chicago um, was co-founded by myself, but also um, Jerry Krishnan, who is both a pulmonologist and an epidemiologist. And he has a pulmonology clinic um, where he sees uh, patients with uh, a range of diseases, but primarily COPD. And um, he has designed that clinic to spend on average up to an hour and a half with each patient. Um, And what happens through that extension of time with the patient is really developing a deeper understanding and appreciation of the whole person and being able to contextualize a care plan um, and, and treatment that's more calibrated to the individual's circumstance. Now, I, I recognize that you know, that is probably very difficult to scale. Um, But there are other situations, again, in analogous situations where you can achieve both volume and uh, a good experience at the same time. I mean, this is something that Disney has accelerated at, you know, in in the domain of entertainment, uh, which is, you know, they get a lot of people into their theme parks. Um, they get a lot of throughput um, without necessarily um, doing it in a way that's not cost effective. So uh, there are, are tricks. So I, I'm thinking in terms of an analogy of a person having to wait in line for a ride at Disney. They knew that, you know, in the past, uh, long lines were a frustration for people, so they've created ways for um, making waiting more productive. We are similarly doing work um, within our own healthcare system, thinking about uh, how to flip and think about 
long waiting times for patients in clinics uh, as a liability and turning them into assets. So currently it's viewed as downtime, both from the patient's perspective and also from the clinician's perspective. But could we conceivably use that downtime to be more productive time, to use that time for patient education, to use that for doing other types of health screening, which could be uh, the source of new sources of revenue. So um, I think that there's an aspect to this, which is also very entrepreneurial. Um, and it's doing what entrepreneurs have always done, which is looking at something that a lot of other people have viewed as a problem and viewing that problem as an opportunity area to develop a solution that can be monetized. Yes, I like the idea of thinking that physicians have a say in how this develops um, since it's so early in the process and you know the idea of value-based healthcare, which has been around for some time but has really not yet taken a stronghold um, in the U.S. healthcare system yet, that offers an opportunity for physicians who are thinking a little bit ahead to help design um, what they think would be best for the patient and for themselves. And so I think this is a great opportunity for physicians to get involved um, and really make sure that their voice is heard. Are there any specific resources or um, courses that you would recommend for our listeners who haven't yet maybe been personally involved in design or implementation science but are interested in learning more? Sure. Um, uh, there are some good books um, that provide overviews of the human-centered design process, um, broadly described. I, I, I would recommend uh, a book called 101 Design Methods by uh, Vijay Kumar. I would also suggest a book called Communicating the New by someone named Kim Irwin. Um, as far as resources go, IDO is the world's largest design consultancy. They have um, really been a, a great amplifier of design's impact, and, and they've been influencing the world of business for decades now. Um, and they've worked for decades also in healthcare. Um, so uh, IDO.org. Um, has courses that are available that are, are um, great points of introduction. I think it's important to understand, though, that um, there's human-centered design broadly writ, and then there's human-centered design for healthcare delivery. And healthcare delivery is a very different context. Um, design is very aspirational. It prototypes and, you know, believes in, in trying solutions, but within um, healthcare environments where decisions and actions that people take actually have consequences on, on people's health outcomes, um, you can't uh, be as um, open-ended and exploratory as uh, traditional design works. So it's best to get some grounding in the principles of human-centered design, but then speak with um, people who have actually been practicing human-centered design for a long time. So there are places like Mayo, 
um, where human-centered design has been part of its operating model for a long time. Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, the Dell College of Medicine at University of Texas, Austin, um, and uh, our organization, Cleveland Clinic, uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Um, and so uh, there is a network and um, the, the best way to access that network is through um, doing some exploring and looking at the literature that's now being generated. Stacy Chang, who's the executive director of um, the, the Design Institute at University of Texas, Austin, um, is one of the editors of uh, the New England Journal of Medicine's new Catalyst. Um, imprint, and uh, I, I find him to be very eloquent. Uh, and he also was formerly the head of IDO's healthcare practice. And so um, beginning with Catalyst and with his readings, I think will connect you with other people who are associated uh, with human-centered design in healthcare. And from there, you can triangulate and then you can always reach out to the Institute for Healthcare Delivery Design at UIC. Wow, that's a, a dearth of knowledge and um, some excellent recommendations. So thank you so much for that. Um, I think that pretty much wraps up our planned discussion on this incredibly important topic. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Music. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ashley. All right, folks, that wraps up our episode of ENT in a nutshell. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.